remain standing and um, grab your Bibles, and um, we're going to take a look here. Get this. We're going to take a look here at uh, Luke chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, there's one pro- uh, provided for you in the seat in front of you. And uh, we always like to remind you that if you don't have a Bible, that's your Bible. You can take that with you. It's our gift to you. We want you to have the scriptures in your home. If you uh, are using one of those Bibles, we're going to be on page 514 this morning. And uh, for the rest of you, Luke 22 in your own Bibles. And we're going to start at verse 39. And this is what we read. And he came and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when they came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We're in the second part of a series that we've entitled His Last Days, and we're looking at the events that precede the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Last week, if you'll recall, we talked about the last Passover supper that Jesus shared with his disciples and how he had washed their feet immediately after they had been arguing about who was the greatest among them. And and we talked about how Jesus had told them that one of them would betray him and And we talked about how Jesus told them that Peter would deny that he even knew him three times that very night. But we also talked about how it was on that same night that Jesus presented them with the the bread that represented his soon-to-be-broken body that was going to be broken for their healing. And he, he presented the cup of wine, which represented the new covenant, which would be established by the pouring out of his precious blood on the events of the following day. And so today we're going to talk about what happened next, how Jesus went with his disciples to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. This is how in Matthew and Mark the story begins. Mark fourteen twenty six says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I've got to be honest with you. I I have always loved the way that this part of the story is introduced. Now think about this. The disciples have had a night of one bit of devastating news after another. 
And yet, before Jesus dismisses them to the next thing that's going to happen, they unite in praise to the Father with a singing of a hymn. How powerful is that? How would things in your life, in my life, be placed in better perspective if we would intentionally praise God in the middle of our most stressful moment? How would that change things? What if we didn't have to get Katie to work us up in order to feel like praising the Lord? What if we did it just because in the very best and in the very worst of our moments, He was worthy of it? What if that's all the impetus we needed to praise Him? This moment of worship shared by Jesus and His disciples sets the tone for everything else that's going to follow that night. When they leave Jerusalem, they cross the Kidron Valley on the east of the city and they begin ascending the Mount of Olives where Jesus often retired to pray with his disciples. They make their way to an olive grove at the base of the mount known as the Garden of Gethsemane. Now the word Gethsemane in Hebrew means olive press. Gethsemane was the place where valuable oil was extracted from olives by placing them in a press and crushing them until their precious oil flowed out freely. The oil of the olive was used in ancient Israel for everything. They used it for cooking too like we do, but they used it for personal cleansing. They used it for fuel in their lamps. They used it as an ingredient in perfume. They even used it for medicine. And this was an appropriate place. This garden, uh, this the olive press, this garden of the olive press was an appropriate place for Jesus to find himself on the night before his crucifixion because he was about to be crushed for the sins of the whole world. In fact, that word is used by the prophet Isaiah looking forward to Jesus' crucifixion. He says in Isaiah 53:10, he says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But in this crushing, in this in this seeming destroying of Jesus, what majesty, what beauty would flow from the crushing of the Lord? Like the olive oil that was used to cleanse the body, the blood of Jesus would truly and permanently wash away all of our sins and purity. 1 John 1.7 tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Like the olive oil that fueled the lamps of the people in that day, Jesus' death would ignite a light whereby the world could once and for all finally really see truth. He said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. As the olive oil was used as an ingredient in perfume, I am here to tell you this morning there is no sweeter aroma to be found in all the world than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance. Can you smell that? Can you smell that? He uses us to always spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Just like the olive oil was applied in days gone by to heal the sick, the blood of Jesus is a healing balm that cures our diseased souls. Peter, quoting Isaiah, reminds us that by his wounds we have been healed. And it was in this dark, lonely olive orchard that Jesus would begin 
to feel the crushing that he must endure. When he arrived, he separated himself from all of the disciples except for Peter, James, and John. And he revealed to them in that moment the depth of his anguish. And I got to be honest with you, when I was first became a believer, this bothered me because Jesus is It was in my mind he was some kind of superhero, and he shouldn't say things like this. But listen to what Jesus said. The Bible says that he began to be sorrowful. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy One. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. Have you ever felt like your soul was in so much turmoil that you were going to die? You ever felt like that? Have you ever, could you relate to that? Jesus did. But notice something about Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy One. He did not call on some divine power to remove the physical pain or the emotional agony he was about to endure. In fact, Isaiah, again, looking forward to this moment, he described Jesus as a man of sorrows and he called him one who was acquainted with grief. I don't know about you. But I find tremendous comfort in that fact. Tremendous comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ knew what it, what it is like to experience that level of emotional agony. You see, if Jesus were some Zeus-like deity perched high atop Mount Olympus, I don't know what comfort, if any, that would bring to me. But it matters to me that he experienced loss, that he was despised, rejected, that he cried. And at the highest, most stressful point of his life, he was in extreme emotional distress. And I can relate to that. But more importantly, you know what it tells me? It tells me that the Son of God can relate to me. The writer of Hebrews said he was a high priest who was well able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Yet, in in that moment when he's sympathizing with our weaknesses at the highest point of emotional distress, that same writer tells us that he never caved into sin like I often do. Next, we see what his response to this anguish was. He didn't just curl up into the fetal position and bawl his eyes out and refuse to go to the cross. Listen to what he did. Mark 14.35 says, And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. Now, there's, there's more to that. Obviously, you see that. But just pause there. His response to incredible duress, incredible stress, anxiety that you and I have never experienced was to fall to the ground and pray. And that will preach right there. And he prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And at an infinitely greater point of stress, a point of crisis than you and I will ever face, Jesus casts himself on the goodness and the sovereignty of his Father. Now, a lot has been written and preached about this, but the term that Jesus uses here, Abba, Father, is a very intimate term for God. It, its relational implication is deeper than just to say, Father. It's more like Jesus is calling God his Daddy. Jesus knew who loved him. He knew who heard him. And he knew that he could be trusted to accomplish what was best, his beloved father. But Jesus also asks boldly, if it's possible, if there's another way, let this hour, let this cup pass from me. And think about Jesus' last few hours. Think about what's transpired at this point in the story. Uh, The disciples 
argue about the pecking order. Peter boasts about his superior but untested bravery. In a few moments, one of them will literally draw a sword and take matters into his own hand. But where do we find Jesus casting himself on God's mercy? While the rest of them are trusting their status or they're trusting their sword, Jesus is trusting his father. This is not at all because he was powerless. In Matthew, he tells the disciples that he had legions of angels at his disposal, ready to put a stop to all of this if he so desired. But what some would mistake as Jesus' powerlessness, as though Jesus were just a victim, was in fact Jesus' trusting submission to God's plan of salvation. This is confirmed for us in the next words of his prayer. Mark fourteen thirty six says, Yet not what I will, but what you will. What a powerful prayer. There, you know, maybe you might make the argument that, Je- that the devil was defeated by Jesus when he died on the cross or that the devil was defeated by Jesus when he came out of the tomb. I'm telling you, the devil was absolutely destroyed when Jesus said, Yet not what I will, but what you will. That was the end of anything that could ever succeed for the devil because Jesus was fully committed, fully, submit, fully submitted to God's plan at that point. From before the foundation of the world, Jesus knew, Jesus loved, and Jesus was committed to the plan of salvation for the human race. But if that's true, I'll, I'll allow you a question. If that's true, if Jesus loved it, was committed to it, if, if that's true, then what was this cup that... And why did Jesus petition that it be removed from him? What is Jesus talking about that? If possible, remove this cup from me. The cup that Jesus preferred not to drink from had nothing to do with a Roman whip. It had nothing to do with three nails or a crown of thorns. Many men have bravely faced all kinds of horrible deaths for a noble cause. Many men have done so. So what was it that Jesus would literally boldly ask his father to remove from him. It was this, that the perfect, holy, second person of the Trinity had never once for all time at to any degree been stained with human sin. And while you and I get real comfortable with our sin, we categorize it all, big sins, little sins. As long as I don't do big sins, I'm okay because I only do little sins. Jesus knew that any level of sin was absolutely toxic and would put that would bring death. And Jesus said, I cannot imagine the thought of sin. Sin was, was more than Jesus could ever, you know, before he had never experienced it. And so it was something that he, he took very seriously that he was about, what he was about to face. Never had before been stained with the smallest amount of sin. And now, oh now, he wouldn't just be touched with a little bit of it. He would now give his shoulders to bear all of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the punishment of sin for all of us who would ever believe. And let me tell you something. There's enough in me alone that could have stained Jesus terribly. Think about all of us. Think about everyone else in every nation of the world that would believe. And Jesus bore all of their sins upon his shoulder. That was the cup. That was the cup. Lord, save me from this pollutant. But that's not all. He, he had never had a moment's separation for all of eternity from his Father. There was not one degree of separation 
between him and the Father in a level of unity that you and I could never begin to understand. He had that. He was never separated from the Father. And now, in just hours, he would cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke says that this reality began to tear at his physical frame far before the whip, far before the nails. It says his sweat became as great drops of blood. Though rare, this is an actual medical phenomenon. You can research it. It's called hematidrosis. And it happens to people who are under extreme duress. This tells us that the reality of the emotional state of Jesus in the garden, that that it was severe. And yet, and yet, he kept praying. He kept praying. He kept throwing himself on the mercy and the goodness of Almighty God. Matthew and Mark says that when he prayed, he, he would get up and he would go to find the three disciples who had accompanied him. And when he found them, he would find them sleeping. Now Luke says that they had fallen asleep because of their sorrow, that, that the, they, they too were so overwhelmed that all they could do is collapse. But Christ, even though they were sorrowful, Christ encouraged them to rouse themselves and continue to pray so that, quote, you may not enter into temptation. Sometimes when your life becomes unbearable, and the stress is incredible, feel like you've never been more depressed than you are, don't you just really kind of want to do what the disciples did? Just pull down the shades and pull up the blankets for a little while? Just check out. I've done it. Have you? Are you tempted like they were to give in to apathy and say, I don't even care anymore? To give in to fatalism and say, nothing's ever going to change. Jesus said that they did this for one simple reason. That the spirit was indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. See, though our spirits were designed, they were made to connect with and be sustained by perfect fellowship with God, the flesh is always pulling us down to the path of least resistance. Just do whatever feels the most comfortable. And I'm here to tell you, I tell you this a lot, but whatever feels the most comfortable is also probably the most destructive. Usually that's the case. I would love to sit on the couch and watch SpongeBob and eat Cheetos all day long, but it would have a very negative effect on my long-term health prospects. Amen? Jesus' example shows us that real comfort and lasting peace don't come from checking out. They come from the pursuit of open communication, open, intimate communication with the Heavenly Father at all times, to seek His face. Jesus kept praying. The, The cycle happened three times in the story. Jesus prays, Father, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He gets up, finds the disciples sleeping, wakes them up. You know, uh, don't enter into temptation. Spirit's willing, flesh is weak. He goes through that cycle three identical times. And while they keep sleeping, he keeps praying. And what was the result of Jesus' commitment to pressing into the Father? Watch this. This is so cool. So Jesus is praying. The disciples are sleeping. In just a short time, Jesus would be arrested unjustly, betrayed by a friend, And yet he would remain calm, trusting in his father. In fact, instead of being questioned, I kind of like this, he questioned those who were arresting him. (laughs) He said, I'm asking the questions here while they were arresting him. In fact, in John, when the mob shows up, he twice asks them, who are you seeking? 
And they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. And when he responds, if you look at it in the original Greek, our translations kind of mess this up. Your translation in your Bible probably says that he says, I am he. That is not what Jesus said. When they said, who are you seeking? When he said, who are you seeking? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. He looks at them and he says, I am. Does that sound familiar to any of you? What is the name of God that he revealed to Moses? I am that I am. And those soldiers looked at Jesus and they said, and he said, he said, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And you know what the Bible says happened twice? They fell back. The power and the revelation of the glory of God in that moment when Jesus would seem like more of a victim knocked them on their rear end. Power. In the other Gospels, he reminds them, he says, hey guys, I was with you every day in the temple. I was peacefully teaching over the last week. And he asks them, that how come now they're coming with torches and clubs to arrest him like he's a common criminal? And, and what is that all about? He's reminding these guys, listen to this, don't ever forget it. He's reminding them that they are playing a role in his drama. He's not playing a role in theirs. He is the author of the story, and they are playing their role. Now compare that with the reaction. So Jesus is praying. Jesus is calm. Compare that to the reaction of the sleeping disciples who could not muster the strength to even pray for one watch of the night. When the mob arrives, Peter draws a sword in total panic and cuts off a man's ear. And even here, Jesus calmly, mercifully heals the man's ear. Soon after that, they all scatter. They all go their different directions. One of them runs off completely naked, Mark tells us. Think they were scared? They scatter like rats. They abandon Jesus to protect their own skins. Soon, Peter, the great swordsman, will be weeping in a corner, realizing Jesus' words were true, and he denied him three times the Lord of life when he needed him most. And this story shows us just what a difference a passionate life of prayer really makes. Remember this? What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. What? Everything to God in prayer. Listen to this next part. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I think Jesus knew that. Martin Luther once said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer, communication with the Father, is your oxygen believer. It is the air that fills your spiritual lungs. Let me ask you, how long you been holding your breath? Some of you look pretty darn blue if you ask me. How long you been holding your breath? Can I just invite you this morning to just breathe? Is your oxygen. He's the air that you breathe. Jesus knew that. He modeled it. He lived it. And his prayer was not like ours. Stop me if you recognize this prayer. Oh, God, give me this. Oh, God, get me out of that. Anybody relate? Anybody ever prayed that? That did not come out of the Book of Common Prayer, by the way, although it's the most common prayer. Jesus' prayer was evidence of an intimate connection with his Abba Father. 
This doesn't mean that he was afraid to ask for things from God. We saw that earlier, that he did exactly that. But it seems that though Jesus cared more, he, or, or it seems that Jesus cared more about being with God than receiving any particular answer or temporal deliverance from momentary suffering. And we have evidence of that when he prays powerfully, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He looked upon the Father as faithful and trustworthy, someone to whom he could entrust both his best days and his worst days. And there was no worse day than the one on which the Lord of glory would be put to. In other places in the Bible, we see Jesus praying very celebratory, very worshipful prayers. And here we see Jesus offering up an agonized prayer. And what does that teach us? What does that teach us? It teaches us two things. Two things by the, by the variety of Jesus' prayers. One, that it is always an appropriate response to pray. Always. Should we pray? Oh, yeah, you should pray. Well, things are going great. You should pray all the more so you don't enter into temptation. Things are going bad. Well, you better put your hope in Jesus and not in the fix. It's always appropriate to pray. But the second thing it teaches us is that Christian maturity is in evidence when our prayer is not mainly about getting results or certain results, but our prayer demonstrates our Christian maturity when when it's about faith in, about reliance and dependence on, and relationship to the Father. When I'm praying because... He's the air I breathe versus the guy who's going to get the, the bill paid. Nothing wrong with praying for the bill. I do it all the time, all the time. But if that's all we're praying for, we're missing the very privilege of Jesus is nothing more than calling the helpline in India. It, 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 that's all he is if all we do is trying to get stuff done. But if we said, Jesus, your presence is what I want to get done, he will always answer that prayer, always. So where are you at this morning? Are you praying that you may not enter into temptation? Or are you soundly, soundly sleeping? Which part of you right now is steering your life? Is it the flesh, which is weak, or is it the spirit, which is willing? If you're praying, how are you praying? Is God a deity to be appeased with bargains and sacrifices? Or is he a father who can be trusted no matter what your I hope that... You can feel this morning the Holy Spirit prompting you to live a life of greater, more trusting prayer. And perhaps, however, you're intimidated and you're saying, man, that sounds great, but I don't even know where to start. So the best counsel I can give, studied hours and hours uh, in all kinds of texts and from hundreds of years to give you this great advice. Are you ready? Just start. You're thinking, man, we overpay this guy big time. Just start. Take every single opportunity you have to talk to God. For example, you can start with sincere gratitude at all times. You know, it's always appropriate to pray. It's also always appropriate to say, thank you, Lord. Always. Uh, Let me give you an example, just a, a real quick example. If you don't thank God routinely for your meals... Some of you may not do it because you think, oh, that's just religious. You know, God is great. God is good. Listen to me. I want to make an appeal to you, especially if you don't have a habit of praying. Start there. If you don't routinely thank God for your meals, begin to do so. And if you do do it, and you just kind of do it routinely, you know, say the same prayer over and over, kind of do it as just a thing to check off your list before you eat, take a moment and ask God to do a work in you. Every time you pray for your meal, you got a bologna sandwich there, stop and say, God, 
I'm asking you to do a miracle in my heart and make me, who is routinely selfish, make me truly grateful for what you have provided. See, we have a problem in the West. I don't really think that God provides my food. Can I be honest with you? I know I'm the pastor and everything, but I don't really think he does. I kind of think Walmart does or Sprouts does or United does. I've never even, you know, I've never, you know, tilled my own fields or slaughtered my own cattle. I've never done that. And so I think that my food comes provided from factories in little pre-measured packages. And we've lost something with that. We've forgotten that everything that we are given and that everything that we consume is a gift from our Father in heaven. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of life. So here's what you do. You, before you pray over that next meal, you stop, you pause, don't get in a hurry. You say, God, help us to be really thankful here. Help us. Show us all kinds of ways that you're providing for us. And he will. He'll do a genuine work to make you grateful for what he's provided for you. And then from there, begin to pray whenever you feel joy. Whenever you feel that something is joyful, pray and say, God, thank you. Thank you for the joy that I feel. Thank you for what you've done here. But you might also want to pray whenever you feel anxious. Has anybody ever read the words of Jesus? In the Gospels where he says, and I say to you, do not worry. So, so, when, we're, so when, we're, when we're worrying, is, is it the right response to go, oh, I'm so stupid, I'm such a bad Christian? No. When you feel like you're worrying, say, God, here I am again. I'm worried about this. So first, God, I want to thank you for bringing me to this moment so I can learn to trust you. Yeah, I'm not even asking you yet to take the thing away because I want to learn to trust you. That's more important. So help me. Pray when you're sick. Pray when you feel loved. Have you ever thanked God for the love of your family, your friends, your wife, your children, your husband? Pray when you feel anger. Some of us need to raise both hands instead of one finger. (laughs) Took you a minute. (laughs) Pray when you feel anger. Pray when you're in need. Pray when you lay down to rest. Have you ever laid your head on your pillow and said, God, what a day. Thank you. Thank you for this glorious day. Or God, this day almost killed me. Thank you that you sustained me. The Bible says these three powerful words. We all ought to get them tattooed on our forehead so we can see them in the mirror. You have to t- tattoo them backwards, though, or it won't make any sense at all. The Bible says these three powerful words, pray without ceasing. And guess what? I've come to this conclusion, another years and years of study on this, all, all those texts I read. I don't think that means only at church. You may feel like your prayers aren't good enough. You may think, oh, man, Mark, I hear you, but gosh, I sound like... I sound like a moron when I pray. I tell, I'm just tripping all over my spiritual feet. You may feel like you're not spiritually sophisticated enough because you can't pray these and thous and verilies and, you know, whatever else. But I don't think no matter how you're praying, that's what God thinks. Think about your own kids if you have any. If your daughter, your little girl, were to bring you a fistful of dandelions freshly plucked from the backyard What mom in this room would say, uh, hello, what is this? Mommy wants fresh cut roses from the florist. Try again. Of course not. If your kid brings you a picture that he scribbled at school and he made it just for you, would you look at him and say, well, you're certainly no Rembrandt. Of Of course. You delight in the gift because of the love that you have for the giver. You go, wow. Rembrandt ain't got nothing on you. This is the prettiest bouquet I've ever gotten in my life. 
because you love the giver. You're overjoyed because your child is attempting to express love in even the most inept and meager way. Raise your hand if you see where I'm going with this. Do you suppose God is any less thrilled to hear our inept and meager attempts to touch his heart? Let's respond today by making a fresh commitment together to approaching our Father, whether you find yourself this morning in good times or bad times or in-between times. Listen, I am not saying, please do not misinterpret what I'm saying. this. I'm not saying... Discipline yourself to pray in five easy steps. Buy my book and figure out how. I am not saying that. I haven't written it yet. I'll come at you when the book is done. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I am not telling you to learn religious verbiage or to study some advanced theology of prayer. What I hope that I've been able to do this morning is to call you to begin to communicate with your father who love you immeasurably. Let us be quick to pray that we may not enter into temptation. Let's pray. Ah, Lord, every one of us here, starting with me, has to confess that we are too many times found with our hand in the machinery whether the, instead of just trusting you, God. God, too many of us would have to that we are so often found, God, begging for stuff and not really caring whether we have you or not. So God, would you do a work in our hearts, God? The worst thing that could happen this morning for, is for us to just hear a sermon or to just see some story in the Bible and not realize that, that the way you called on the Father is an open invitation to us to walk in the same intimacy and to pour our lives out and throw ourselves at the mercy of God. Would you do a work in us? Father, would you prompt us in the moment of our temptation to sin, to would you prompt us in our moments of blessing, financial, physical, mental, emotional, to pray? God, would you prompt us to thank you for little blessings, to, to pray when we're anxious, Lord God? God, if our words sound like a four-year-old, we don't care, God. We just want to breathe the oxygen of communication. So, Lord, I just ask you as we go our separate ways for this morning, God, that you would just do a work in us. Find us this week on our knees. God, do like you did with the disciples you love so much. Come to many of us and shake us and say, get up, rise up, pray that you don't enter into temptation because the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Lord, we pray that you would make our spirit more willing than our flesh is weak. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.